during my stay in Papua New Guinea, I was full-time there and my managers were rotating. So every four weeks they would come and go home. And every time they would come back to the job site, they always seemed to have like a new rental property and they were buying all these foreclosed houses, dirt cheap. And, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm bored on my mind. I can't do anything. And so I look into buying these houses, you know, I'm young, like to show people up a little bit. So I was like, I'm going to buy like 80. I forgot how we came with 80, but it was 80 foreclosed houses we were trying to buy and kept calling these banks. I had a beautiful spreadsheet, showed our takedown schedule. It was going to take like two years and all the banks just kept hanging up or laughing probably because I was calling from a Papua New Guinea phone number, but also because of what I was actually saying on the phone. Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the US market. Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reid Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom, massive amounts of cash flow and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes, and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug, but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today on the show, the pleasure of speaking with Joseph Bramante. Now, Joseph is the co-founder and CEO of a Houston-based real estate firm called Triac Real Estate Partners and a wholly integrated multifamily investment company. He first purchased his first multifamily property way back in 2011, sight unseen, while working as a team leader for ExxonMobil in PNG, or Papua New Guinea, which is the neighbor to the north of Australia, if you don't know where that is on a map. Uh, today, he's grown his portfolio to over 1,100 units and increasing the NOI by over 80% on average within the first 48 months post-acquisition. And the thing that really makes Joseph tick is his passion about using his creativity and analytical ability to solve problems and acquire and develop multifamily properties. I'm super pumped and excited to have him on the show because he's also also spent some time in Australia, in Brizzy, where I'm from. But enough out of me. Let's get him out of here. G'day, Joseph. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? Good day, man. Good to be here. <laughs> I get to break out my uh, get to break out my Aussie lingo. Yeah, man. Yeah. Well, before we get into it, where where did you live in Brizzy when you were there, and why were you living in Brisbane? 
So I was in the CBD, Central Business District, and I was there. We were at the kind of the pre-funding stage of that PNG project, the PNG LNG project. So we were, you know, Exxon has stages for projects and we were spending the first year right before we went into country, finalizing everything. And then as soon as we got the go ahead and the project was funded, then we moved in country. So basically it was our, our closing process. As soon as the project closed and we got a lender lending funding, then we went in country. That's awesome. So have you been to, I'm just going to spout off some old bars. I used to go to Fridays on the water there. It was a, it was a nightclub there. Anyway, I don't know if you've been there. There's a the Caxton no, hotel. I did go, there was a lot of bars on the water we went to. Um, there was this awesome steakhouse on the water. I remember the sauce was in like a little cow container and you would pour it and it was you guys have the, the best steaks I've ever had. It's weird because we're in Texas, right? And Texas has good steaks, but people don't realize that Aussies have great steaks as well. I don't know what it is. I think it's the grass fed. I don't know, but yeah. What do you, what do you, what's your, what's your thoughts on lamb out there? Cause I know we can't get lamb here in the States is, is readily available. It's a little bit of an ooh la la meat. Um, it's readily available in Australia. Did you get tucked into some lamb? Yeah, I had a little bit. It's not not really for me, to be honest. Uh, okay. But, you know, the kangaroo is actually pretty good. Yeah, uh, you, you tried some kangaroo? That's awesome. I did. Yeah, you put down the barbie <laughs> and it was always marinated. So it was good. Yep. I'm sure some of your listeners are like, oh, no, we ate a kangaroo. Yeah, it was delicious. <laughs> yeah, on a coat of arms for Australia where there's the emu and the kangaroo, we can eat both of them. So. <laughs> But mate, but let's get into the show here. Um, the first question I ask all my guests when they come on the show is, well, wind the clock and tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid. Yeah, so the first ever dollar I made, I uh, legit, I mean, as cliche as it sounds, I had a lemonade stand in my neighborhood and I, you know, people would go up and down the street and the cars would drive by, would they'd give us money or they'd pull up to us and they'd buy lemonade and that was all cute. And I just remember one guy, paid me in oyster crackers and I didn't even know what the hell an oyster cracker was. And anyway, it was just some old man paid me an oyster crackers. Like, hey, I don't have any change, but will this work? And I was like, sure, I'll take that. So <laughs> gave him a couple of lemonade for an oyster cracker or a bag of oyster crackers. Yeah. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. Tell me a little bit about your upbringing. You're from Houston, right? Originally? No, no, from Louisiana, from New Louisiana. Orleans specifically. And uh, we moved around a lot. Uh, I think I haven't lived in one place for more than four years my whole life until moving to Houston. So it was really bouncing around a lot as a kid. Uh, lived in New Orleans, then Lafayette, Broussard, and went to high school in a town called New Iberia, which is where I spent kind of the last bit of my adolescence there. And then went uh, to Ruston, Louisiana for my engineering degree at Louisiana Tech University. Go dogs! <laughs> and then uh, from there, I got the job with Exxon. Um, actually, during while I was there, I ended up getting a few internships. So I interned in uh, Baton Rouge for a company called Owen & White doing engineering consulting. And then another internship for W.S. Nelson a large engineering consulting firm in New Orleans. So that was really cool. And I was all teed up to go work for, for W.S. Nelson after graduation, except Exxon came to town and three months before I graduated, interviewed with them. They gave me an offer and it was substantially more than what I was getting paid <laughs> as an engineer. So I said, sure, I'll take it. I was, I was pretty poor. I was a broke, you know, engineering student, uh, lots of student loans, lots of debt and negative money in my account. So I, you know, uh, anything for a dollar at that point. And Exxon had, was throwing me a lot of dollars. So 
graduated two weeks later, I'm working. And it was, I worked through the Christmas holiday, my first ever job as a corporate man, so to speak. And anyway, they moved, moved back to Houston. And I remember they flew me to interview for Houston, which I thought was cool. It's first time I really ever I'd flew it. Actually, that might've been the first time I ever flown a plane. It was for my interview with Exxon. Really? And they flew me on this small, almost like a private jet plane. It wasn't a private jet, but it was like a small turboprop plane. And I was, I, I was already sold from that point on. I was like, <laughs> wow, they flew me somewhere. And it was, uh, it was a cool experience, you know, being in the big city, like Houston is all highways. It's just tons and tons of highways and we're driving around. It's kind of, it's not really a limo. It's just a private car and a driver. And they took me to my hotel and picked me up to me to my interview and did the whole wow. charade and got the job. But I just remember, wow, they get so impressed how big, you know, Houston is. I mean, you can spend an hour just driving one end to the other. And anyway, that's how I ended up in Houston. And nine months later, they moved me to Australia. That's incredible. Well, it sounds very similar, that, that culture, actually. When did you graduate? Just because I want to understand that time. 2007. Oh, mate, same year as me. So yeah. it's the same in Australia. For those people who don't know, in engineers, you know, those last couple of years, there was always in the engineering faculty, there would be a big mining company coming in, throwing on a barbecue, throwing on beers and, you know, trying to recruit as many people as possible. And then, you know, some people went down the mining path because in Australia, we had a huge mining boom and it's still going and you can go out to the mines as a graduate engineer and earn bloody six figures straight out the gate. And it sounds yep. like, but you work like a dog <laughs> and you're working on site. And it sounds like you did the exact same path as, uh, as what I did as well. So, so awesome. But, but I want to dive a little bit more into the time in um, Papua New Guinea before we get into the real estate, because being an American and traveling abroad is, is pretty, not unique, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's quite privileged. And, but then also going to a really third world country like PNG, how was that? an eye-opening experience for you and sort of maybe a grounding experience and giving you a sense of a different culture. Did, did that have a massive impact on you and, and, and your way you think? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, even just going to Australia, I mean, you guys are a first world country, uh, but still it's a different culture. And it's, it's one thing to visit someplace and take pictures and do the tourist thing. But I had an apartment in Australia. I would, I would, uh, my apartment was next door to my uh, office. I was living in a high rise and my office was in a high rise. And it was the first time I'd ever, and I, I ever had that experience. And in Houston, it's not really impossible. Really the only place you can do that is cities like New York, et cetera. And it was just a completely different way of living. I would get groceries on almost a daily basis and I didn't have a car. I was a hundred percent public transit. It was a really just a different way of living and the viewpoint and the people and just everything was, was different. And then, uh, but it was a good different. It was like, a, it was a relatable different, you know, I can, it was very similar, but different compared to American culture versus going in to Papua New Guinea was just completely different. No similarities. I mean, very, very minimal similarities. And, and that's very much a, uh, you know, a former tribal it still is in many places, a tribal country. They, it's tribes everywhere. And there's, you know, when you look at the country, they speak like more than 800 different languages on a country, the size of, you know, for us, I think it's the size of Rhode Island or Hawaii, you know, it's a very small place. And for them to speak that many languages, so diverse. And, um, so, I, for, so from that perspective, it was interesting, you know, and, the food, the hygiene is completely different. I mean, 
wow, the hygiene is, I mean, anybody who goes there, you, you, you notice it from the moment you step on the plane going there till when you land. And I mean, there's just a lot of different smells you're in, you're, you know, around that, yeah, that you're not used to smelling. And then, then you go grocery shopping and then that is an eye opener. You know, I mean, most Americans, most of my friends wouldn't buy half the stuff that I was, that I had to buy on a regular basis just to, you know, sustain, you know, like just, you go to the meat market and it stinks. It, it's like, wow, the, the meat smells bad. If you're buying it. It takes a little while to acclimate to it. Um, but it was, it was interesting. Um, did you, did you get any, did you get any sort of third world belly sort of, you know, eating the food and taking on the, you're getting a little bit sick as, you know, Western guy coming into a third world country that where, where your gut's got to adjust. Yeah, to I really bit. wasn't so worried about it. We were taking Malarone every day, mm-hmm. which I know that's been the news or uh, I think Maliquin's the other one that's been the news lately. Chloroquine. They're both malaria medicines. I took it daily for two years yep. and you know, it was any virus or whatever I ate, it, that medicine just killed it. So I wasn't really <laughs> worried about it. Um, so but it overall, was, it sounds like it was an incredible experience being a young guy straight out of uni and just in the thick of it in a third world country and PNG being a pretty you know rough third world country. And as you said, tribalism is, is still really quite, quite pre- yeah, prevalent I remember up there. I was sitting in my car. If we had drivers, we weren't allowed to drive anywhere. We were, we had like a handful of bars and restaurants we were allowed to go to. Uh, and they enforced that by ensuring nobody drove. We had the driver would take us everywhere. We had call signs to make sure we weren't kidnapped or anything. So, it was, uh, but anyway, I remember sitting in the car one day and I'm, they just picked me up from the grocery store. I'm, we're pulling out of the driveway and we're in traffic. And there's this man and a woman having a fight on the side of the street. And the woman's got a butcher knife and the man's got a flip flop or a thong as you would say say. And so I just thought, wow, these guys are, and, and the traffic's just continuing on going. Nobody's, you know, bothered to just continue on. And, you know, here in Texas, we're used to seeing guns. We're used to being around guns. It's a pretty big gun culture, but i tell you what, I would, I'm much more terrified of, of everybody having machetes. Like what I saw in Papua New Guinea than a gun, like shoot me. That's fine. But do not hit me with a damn machete. Cause that, that I've, I've seen videos and photos of some of our own workers who, I guess, you know, got into arguments in the, in the, in the jungle and they'd have a machete fight and a machete fight is nothing pretty. Mm, so, mm, yeah, no, it's, but, but, but overall it seems like a hugely positive experience to come back and, you know, experience something that a lot of people in Papua New Guinea don't have a lot, right. And, yeah. uh, and trying to make do. And it just, the reason oh, I'm we not are, going to, we are extremely privileged. I mean, even our homeless yeah. people, as I was talking about, like, like, I legit saw people dying on the street, like starving. You could see their bones. It was bad. Uh, Whereas here, like our homeless guys are fat. We have obese fat people. Sorry. We have obese homeless people. Like, how is that even a thing? And we're, so it's just completely different level. And, you know, it was definitely eye-opening for me. You know, I just realized, wow, so glad to be born. And we should should all be blessed that we're born in a first world country. And, um, yeah. You don't have to worry where your food's coming from and the hygiene of all that stuff. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it, I enjoy, not from a privileged standpoint, but just I enjoy going to third world countries to realize what I have, mm-hmm. right? And to realize and be grateful for that because it's so important to, 
just sometimes we get so caught up in our own BS, right, that we don't ever realize we get outside of our comfort zone and realize, oh, crap, a lot of people have got a lot more worse than I do. So, yeah, um, yeah mate, so enough about that. Let's get into the real estate story. So you, you're a young guy. You seems like it's roughly the same age as me in the early 30s. What made you get involved in real estate? Yeah, so I was, during my stay in Papua New Guinea, I was, I was full-time there and my managers were rotating. So every four weeks, they would come and go home. And uh, every time they would come back to the job site, they always seemed to have like a new rental property. And they were buying all these foreclosed houses for, you know, just dirt cheap. And, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm bored out of my mind. I can't do anything. And so I look into buying uh, these houses as well. But, you know, I'm young, like to show people up a little bit. So I was like, I'm going to buy like 80. I forgot how we came with 80, but it was 80 foreclosed houses we were trying to buy and kept calling these banks. I had a beautiful spreadsheet, showed our takedown schedule. It was going to take like two years and all the banks just kept hanging up or laughing probably because I was calling from a Papua New Guinea phone number, but also because of what I was actually saying on the phone. And anyway, finally, one of them just said, go buy an 80 unit apartment complex. So I couldn't afford 80 units, but I could afford a smaller one. So that was the initial kind of conversation. I got my interest peaked, did some research, read a few books, kind of self-taught myself this kind of 30,000 foot education of multifamily. And away I went reaching out initially on LoopNet, getting in touch with brokers and then having them show me deals. Uh, and it bought my first apartment, a little 26 unit deal, sight unseen. Uh, and that's kind of how I jumped. It's just me and another employee. We put our mind together and we bought that first deal. Awesome. Awesome. And then, and when was that time where you actually catapulted off the platform of the day job and got full time into real estate? About six months later when Exxon fired me. Yeah. Oh, really? So it, was, it wasn't really uh, by choice. I was, you know, I was kind of like walking on the edge of the pool and then Exxon just kicked me in. So that was kind of what happened. <laughs> How so? Because you just weren't paying attention because you're too focused on the No, it was, you know, Exxon's a very much, it's a great company, but they're a, they're great for a certain type of personality, a cookie cutter kind of organization, a yes, sir, no, sir. And entrepreneurs don't do very well over there. You know, I was challenging people. I was told I had a disrespect for authority. I was, you know, challenging managers and questioning things. And, you know, those types of traits don't do well at Exxon. So. No, I, I know, I know exactly what you meant. I've spent some many times, many months and weeks in the bush on a, on a mine site on, on a camp where, yeah, it's the same. I know exactly the type of person I can visualize them standing in front of me, cursing their mouth off. And you're just like, you'd even do like, you didn't know what you're doing, you little whippersnapper, you know, <laughs> no, it's, but, but you got to go through that type of stuff to realize what you want in life. And, and then that, that spirit of entrepreneurship. So did that spirit come from anywhere growing up or is that just, you sort of, this looks cool and I don't want to be working for some crappy corporation. No, like I had, no, my, my stepdad's an engineer for, he's the head engineer for a power company. My mom's an artist. So she's a housewife, but slash artist. And, uh, so nobody, my, my family is really owns a business or anything. And I had no intention of owning a business until it, it just happened. I was, I initially thought I was going to be a career man with Exxon and then have all these properties on the side because I wanted to retire early. 
but I guess I never really made the connection that retiring early with other, with all these properties means that you're going to own a business. It was, uh, I just thought I was buying an investment property like many other pass, passives will go into. Right. No, well, and it's, it's super important to, to highlight that because I know I can assimilate with you in terms of that need and want to you discover something and as the engineering brain and I've had many engineers, ex-engineers on the show, it's sort of like the, the unraveling of the, the thread. It's like all of a sudden you just keep, you pull out, it's like, what's this here? Oh, oh, oh God. And then all of a sudden it just keeps going, right? And you just keep going deeper and deeper. And, and because you're analytical, you're like, well, I, this makes so much sense. Like, why am I doing it? Why isn't everyone doing this? And you, you, you eventually take the leap of faith. So that's awesome. Um, but I want to talk today about, in, and we spoke a little bit in the green room before we press record here, is about the, the type of institutional level project management that you bring and, and, and that I hope subsequently also bring because I came from the engineering background to your business today that maybe the average guy getting involved in this indication won't necessarily know. So, do you want to start with, you know, we talked about earlier about contracts and the type of contracts you want to implement when you are making sure you want to hold your GC's feet to the fire and really what are your sort of tips and tricks about that? Yeah, so one, you've, you've got to be aware of the size of your project, right? So if you're doing a small rehab and your your biggest kind of contract or your biggest scope of work is maybe, you know, a low, below a million you know, you might be okay with a smaller, you know, you got to scale the contract accordingly to the scope of work. Uh, for us, we've got an $8 million rehab we're doing on 220 units. So we're doing a monster rehab right now. And I've, I've done other large rehabs as well. And so the real key is make sure you're one size in the contract to fit the scope of work you're doing. Uh, and then number two, there's clauses in there, you know, and, you know, the, the standard kind of construction. I forgot, what, what, what is the, the name of it? AIM? Uh, uh, Architects, Architects Institute, the American Institute of Architecture has a stock standard bunch of contracts. Yeah, sorry, keep going. So you can use that one. You can, we, I don't think we use that one. We use a slightly different one, uh, but I have seen that one before. Uh, talk to an attorney, try and get you an affordable attorney, but they'll have an option for you. Uh, but some commonplace things that you want to want in your contract is uh, one, you want to have a schedule, at least a preliminary schedule for what's going on. And I think uh, for us, you know, one of the things that we've done is, you know, it's how, it's how you do the schedule, right? You, some people just want to do a schedule and they do a very loose schedule and they think, you know, that you're going to start all these units. But one of the trips that one of the tips that I've discovered is, you know, when you're doing these, you're doing your schedule, you really want to, if it's a big rehab, big interior rehab, you want to group your units. So you say like, we're going to do groups of 10. So you're going to be taking down 10 units at a time versus just giving your GC every unit as it comes free. Cause if you do that, you're going to be asking for trouble. Uh, because now he could potentially just have all these units tied up and uh, it's hard to, to track an individual unit, but it's easy to track a group of 10 units at a time. So group your units when you're doing a schedule. And then other one, the others be flexible. Don't try and get it right on the first one. So uh, the reason I say is you can do what's called a rebaseline and we're doing one right now, actually. So we had this, that this big rehab we're doing, we did a preliminary schedule, we put it in a contract, but then, you know, the first 
say three to six months of any rehab you're going to do, you're learning a lot about that property. Like this is the first time you've really kind of stepped foot on it and really gotten behind the walls. And, uh, and so there's a lot of discovery, uh, of what's going on. And so it's okay to rebaseline and, and get things back in order. So, uh, so just don't, don't kind of think you have to get it right the first time on the schedule. Uh, and then the other would be on liquidated damages. So LDs as they're called, uh, is kind of your, for lack of a better word, your, your kind of stick to, to get the, to enforce, uh, the GC with and ensure that he hits those targets. Because if he takes down 10 units, for example, and he just takes his time and it takes him three months to turn those units when the original schedule said one month it's costing you a lot of money to have 10 units down for three months. And so you've got to have a mechanism to, you know, kind of claw back some of the, that money that you lost by those units being down. Now that said, as soon as you mention this word to any kind of uh, competent GC, immediately he's going to go on the defense because a lot of people use this as a very kind of in a negative way as a, as a way to literally beat the GC over the head. And, and sometimes you can use it and, and try and tie them into a really tight schedule that, you know, they can't meet just so that whenever they break it, you can then get money back on the back end. And, you know, really don't recommend doing that. It, it, yeah, it probably could help you financially, but it would hurt you, your reputation. You may, you'll probably never do business with that GC again, and you'll get a bad name and he'll tell all his friends. And so just don't do that. Uh, it's, it's a relationship. You're trying to work together and all it is, is just a mechanism that you're both agreeing. And then like for us, we've got the scheduled date, say it's 30 days. Then we're going to add in, okay, if it's not done two weeks after that original 30 days, then the liquidated damages start. So we've got an, an additional buffer on there. We're trying, you know, to show good faith and work with the GC and, uh, and get it done on time. And then if it's late, you know, for us, we, we just simply charge what that unit would rent by the day. Uh, so you take, you know, for the month, divide by 30. And that's per day what we charge for every day that the unit's not turned back over to us. Um, but it's, it's two ways, right? So you also have to be responsive to the GC. So after you've turned the unit over, the next responsibility for you is to make sure that you're punching it on time. Um, and so for us, you know, we, we've kind of given ourselves three days to punch every, every group of units that he's turned over. Um, and you just work to, to not get in that situation, but back to rebaselining. So we got into this and for us on this, uh, 220 unit property we're renovating, uh, the day we took over. So like six hours after we took over Houston, got hit with the flash flood. And so we lost with 20 units go down automatically right out of the gate. And I was never part of the plan. We were actually supposed to start three months after closing. We were going to take that time to further refine and develop our plans. Instead, we were just immediately hitting the ground running, which caught a lot of us kind of off guard, but nonetheless, that was the situation we we're in. So we went in, made best efforts. We got in, we, you know, do we had to do to the flood units, started renovating units and, uh, quickly things started getting out of hand. You know, it happens. You got a lot of things moving on. We're making adjustments. We're changing the rehab to the interior. We ended up doing a slightly higher rehab than we originally thought, but that's what we had contingency for, which I'll get to in a second. Um, but that said, you do a rebaseline, you kind of hit the reset button on all of your LDs You say, okay, we've done this for 
three, six months. We know what it takes. You know, I can show him, Hey, look, you've been taking, we said 30, but you've actually been taking 60 days. Now that's going to be very expensive for you. And I'm not trying to get money out of LDs. So let's figure out what is a realistic time that's going to take you to get these units, both for our perspective and yours. I need to know, and our operations team needs to know that once you've taken over the units that they can lease it and those units will be ready to them in 60 days for the people to move into. Um, so that's how you kind of use a rebaseline with LDs. And I just want to check your pulse right here, Reed. Am I saying everything correctly? <laughs> no, you see, you know, you're saying everything great. I want to add probably two things in there, uh, which is really important. And, and, and for the listeners out there, because it depends on the, you mentioned grouping and blowing and going right in your, on your, on your work, but you're doing heavy value, had value add, rehabs, right? We've done that on a, on a few deals. It obviously hits your occupancy a lot. So you have to be very careful of that. Um, and it will drop like a rock. Uh, if you're not, if you haven't underwritten to that and you and you think, oh, you're just going to do eight to 10 a month, you know, you turns, um, then you're, you're laughing that you think you're going to maintain a 90% occupancy. Um, so it, it's, it's horses for courses. And we've, we've got assets now, newer assets that we do a slower burn to keep that plus 90% occupancy. Um, but also to add to that to liquidated damages is most of these GCs, you know, you're not dealing with the big dogs who, you know, do $100 million to $200 million worth of, of general contracting a year. You're dealing with maybe they do maximum, you know, $10 million a year. Like there's your side of 10 to $15 million a year, maybe 20 if you're lucky. So you're not like the, the LDs, you aren't going to, get any money out. I, I've been in work for developers and it's gone south and these are big dogs and they have not, it's really just sort of been a rattle stick to them. You know, as you said, a yardstick. You don't actually, the, 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 the contract, so the, the owner doesn't actually get any money out of it. It's just like to get them to the finish line. And you mentioned that the escalating LDs as, you know, you've got the first 30 days, it's at X. We've got a two week buffer. You give them a notice of two weeks and then you've got a 30 day at X price and then it escalates to, to, to 30, 60 days and anything over 90 days, you know, you're probably going to terminate this contract and, and find someone else. So, um, yeah, but it's, it's really good stuff. I just wanted to add in those sort of different horses for courses because you, there, all, there will be different ways in which attacking and, and managing the construction in order to best meet your business plan because that is the most important thing as a, as a construction manager, as an owner, as an investor, to make sure you're sliding in the right GC to suit that business plan to you know whether it's blowing and going at 10 units a month or 12 units a month or it's more of a slow and steady burn. So I just wanted to add that in there. Yeah, no, absolutely. And just to build on that, um, yeah, so... We, for these big rehabs, we're looking at 24 to 36 month durations for that very issue of vacancy management, because it is a big deal and it, it will have a tendency to kind of run, run away from you, particularly because once people start seeing what's going on, if you're doing a big lift like us, we're increasing rent $500. So the residents already kind of get a sense that they're not going to be able to afford to live there. So they're just going to, you know, they do, they think they're doing you a favor by skipping out. They're actually hurting your books because you're depending on their cash flow. And so you're in a weird situation because you're having to backfill with the same previous profile that you're trying to renovate and go to, but then trying to renovate and go to a higher profile. So it's, it's definitely a juggle that you're doing. And then the other issue uh, or not issue, but just another comment is on those liquidated damages uh, regarding the size of the GC. Absolutely. You can, uh, I mean, if you really wanted to, you, 
And if these guys really screwed up, I mean, you could potentially put some of these guys out of business. I mean, it's, it could be, and that's not the intent. And if you let it get to that far, then shame on you, not shame on them because it's, you know, way ahead of time that this thing is out of whack. You should cancel that contract right away and come up with a better solution. It's the intent is not to let this carry out for the full term and then be like, Oh, well, well, liquidated damages is $2 million. So I need to check now. Um, Typically what happens is it kind of comes out of their retained. So they got 10% retention and it would, you know, you're going to draw down from that. Um, but hopefully it will never exceed uh, that retention. So, and one thing I want to just jump in there and add is, is just on a, once you do get off to the races and you start to develop a, what I like to shoot for on interior renovations and it can scale from heavy to, to lighter is let the GC do a couple and get to a, um, a baseline price. So for the one bedrooms, it's X and for the two bedrooms, it's Y. And he may make some money on some units, but he might lose some money on some units. And for me, it helps me with the with the management of it because it was like, we said it was a dollar a square foot for, for install flooring. I don't want to see a dollar fifty. You know what I mean? So like really squeezing them in it, but if you're giving them that the volume, they can really get their crews going in there and blowing and going and making sure you get that really stock standard price. So next time around, when you're doing deal number two and three and four, it's just rinse and repeat. Like, you know exactly what I want and we're going to put in this price. You've obviously got to do a couple to get you going. Um, but but overall, uh, we want to get to a standardized price, which I think is super important as well from a management point of view. Yeah, that, that's a hard thing to do with, I mean, the GC should know what his prices are already. He should be able to, you know, he should know based on a square foot, he's paying so much per square foot. Uh, kind of similar to that is, you know, the concept of test units. So like for us, we did two test units um, with kind of very similar designs. Really, we were just kind of design specking, make sure that we liked it because for a big rehabs, you got designer, they'll go in and they'll do a full rendering for you, scope it all out. We move the walls around, whatever. And we, but until you actually see it completed, you're not really sure if you're going to love it or not. Two test units are completely different of each other. I got completely different finishes and whatnot. And, and they're just going to stay that way. And then from those two, we made a final version and that's what we set the contract on and move forward. And that process, you know, so we spent 60 days on two test units, finalizing it, you know, making sure we liked it, et cetera. But then from that point on, we did a change order. He set the contract based on that going forward. And that's how we were to lock in prices and lock in the timeline, et cetera. Um, so test units, I'd say are very important when it comes to doing big rehabs because it's just, you know, it's, it's going to be the same product, right? Like you're, you're not, you may have two different tones of cabinets, but look, let's be honest where even in class A units and I've built class A at the end of the day, even with class A units, you're still maybe only going to have a two tone different. It comes in the paint choice. You might have a dark cabinet and a light cabinet. And really if you've got 200, 300 units, they're going to be the same, like, these things are being built so they stack. So all the one bedrooms stack and all the all the plumbing is stacked on the one wall. Um, so the bathrooms are above each other, the kitchens are above each other. Uh, and you're not really, it's, it's not that complicated to go and standardize a price in order to get you to um, a, a quicker finish line. Because I think once, for me at least, the way I like to manage, I want to make sure my GC profits. I, I don't I don't want to look over his shoulder every 30 seconds. And if you can get to a price that I'm happy with, you know, 40, you know, $4,500 a unit on a really light rehab or $12,000 a unit on a big rehab. Um, I, and it meets my budget and, I, and I'm actually sort of, you know, I'm holding some back. I'm telling you what my budget is, but really I've got some, some fat in there. It to me is like, if he's, if he's making money, good on him. Um, so I, I think that's really important. The other thing from a contract point of view is um, guaranteed maximum price. Do you use a G, GMP? 
Do not. You do not. Okay. We, no, for those, we're using lump sum. It's all lump sum contract. So there's not, we're not doing reimbursable. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Cool. Are yeah. you at any stage wanting to bring GC in house? I have GC in house. So try our construction launched in January. Got it. How's it going? Yeah. It's gone. Well, I mean, COVID just kind of screwed things up for us. And nobody's renovating, nobody's buying. So it's not a good time <laughs> to have a construction company right now. Uh, everybody's just sitting on their money. Are you self-performing or are you just, you know, small team and, and just getting, you know, still getting the third party GC, uh, third party vendors in like painters and flooring guys and, and, G, and demo guys? Um, I'm not sure I understand the question. So self-performing meaning you have a crew of people that, you know, can do everything from A to Z, uh, a true GC. If you no, go and do yeah, it, do they're it. subbing it out. So we've, we've yeah, got both. Out, yeah. He has a group of, he has his kind of main guys that are in-house and then he supplements those with subs. Yep. Yep. That's, yeah. that, that's so exactly that we'll right. yeah, add yeah. subs based on the size of the project and based on the, the volume of units we have at hand. Uh, but he's, he's hiring and firing. We've been through you know, a dozen different subs already just on this one project. So he's out there constantly monitoring progress and performance on subs, which is what GC, that's what they're for. That's his, that's his main job is make sure these subs are doing their job on time with good quality. And that's the hard thing with, with, with subs. And I've definitely experienced it here in LA and, and definitely in Texas is these subbies, uh, they're, they're sort of very cash flow orientated in terms of they're very much pay to check to paycheck. And when you slow down a little bit, like I know I've got to give, keep my GC at a, a five unit per month minimum clip because if I don't ever go less than that, then he starts to struggle uh, because guys will, will walk to other jobs. You know, you get guys who will go get paid two bucks more an hour and they'll, they'll, excuse my language, will piss off. So it's really important to manage that sub base in order to make sure the job is, you know, they're being paid on time and have the right volume to get to complete the job. But at the end of the day, subs can make or break the job. I've been on jobs where the electrician sub just went bankrupt and is like, we're going to go freaking replace you halfway through a job. It's like, oh my gosh, that's, that takes time and energy and completely stops the work and stops the flow of electrician in and the drywaller in and the plumb, you know, all that sort of stuff. So it's very, it's a juggling piece. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you brought it in house, which I'm sure you're learning a ton, right? As, uh, as you grow. Yeah, well, it's brought in house, but it's uh, we're still using the same GC we've been using. So basically, we just kind of partnered with the GC that we've been using. So I'm not doing the work. It's really it's just a name change. Uh, we kind of franchise mm -hmm. the Triarch brand, so to speak, with our own partnership agreement for it. Uh, but and I'm just supplementing and helping him grow Triarch Construction. But from the day to day, it's still his standard systems. And because construction's a different animal, you know, like we do project management. 100%. But when yep. they're boots on the ground, <laughs> like hardcore project management, we're, we're up here at this higher level. So it's different, different types of project management. And for those people who missed that, that's very smart. What, what you've essentially done is go J JV with an existing contractor who has his systems in place and his little black book, which is what you're paying for, mm -hmm. who have all those subs in there, right? And that's what you want to get access to to make sure that he's got six painters, you know, six different painting companies that he can call upon if one stuff's up, if a different roofing company, like all the different trades that you want to go in and just boom, 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 and make sure you're, you're negotiating directly. So that's awesome stuff, dude. Look, I, I want to, uh, I could talk to you for hours on this sort of stuff. It's, it's, a, it's a cool topic. Obviously, I'm, I'm geeking out about it. Um, but I do want to get to the end of the show. And at the end of the show, we do a lightning round called the Top 5 Investing Tips. Ready to get into it? Let's do it. Mate, what is the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Daily habit, which might seem like it has nothing to do with anything, is I just go to gym in the morning. 
every morning You're gym going? in the gym, yeah. uh, 5 a.m. And phone's right. off. It's not with me. And it's kind of my meditation because I, I just get to think about the day, what I'm going to be doing. Of course, while I'm you know, doing my sets and, and whatnot, but it's, uh, I, I have a lot of aha moments in the gym when I'm just quiet in my thoughts. And, and I, I'm not a headphones guy. A lot of people are in there with their headphones on. It's just silence. I have a lot of Mate, you're not, you're, you're not cut from the same cloth. I don't run with headsets. I don't work out with headsets. I, I'm in there literally no phone whatsoever. I see other people just like scrolling. Well, it's like, get her up and finish the, I want to use yeah, the bench. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're working their thumbs more than anything in the gym. <laughs> love it, man. Love it. Question number two is who's been the most influential person in your career to date? The most influential person in my career to date. Hmm. That's a tough one. Uh, I got to think about that. It's, I mean, it'd probably be my, my two partners, you know, we've, we're partnered, uh, together back in 2013 and they've really kind of, they've brought so much property management experience, uh, and kind of mentored me and showed me what's possible, what's not possible because, you know, as, as you know, I came from oil and gas, Exxon Mobil, And so we're trying to, you know, geek out and do all these little things that we learned in, in the engineering world that in the project manager world that, that don't necessarily apply to multifamily. And then also you just, you know, we all watch podcasts and we see all the advertisements for all the different, you know, a thousand different marketing or whatever things you can do. And it's very easy to get distracted in this industry uh, and so to have, you know, two veterans like that, just kind of help guiding the way and keeping us focused on uh, what's possible. And also is with properties, you know, I, I tended to be a bit, uh, more optimistic on what's possible with some properties when I started out and they, they were pretty good at keeping my feet to the fire and let me know kind of point blank. No, we can't do that. Or, or yes, we can do that. So. Right, no, getting those rose, rose tinted glasses on, mate, as a, as a young buck. No, I love it. Uh, question number three is what's the most influential tool in your business? And when I say tool, it could be a journal or a phone, or it could be a piece of software that you use on a daily basis. So, what is it? Um, you know, we, we use Smartsheets quite a lot, it's a pretty impressive software, and Honestly, I used it to not purchase other softwares. I see another software I like and I'm like, hmm, how can I do that in Smartsheets? And I go and I do it. And so that one little piece of software has allowed me to create a bunch of other pieces of software. And we've we completely automated our entire, uh, a lot of our company, a lot of our weekly reporting is all done through there. I've got a dashboard. I can see on a weekly basis how all the properties are doing and they all get ranked from, you know, number one to number 11 and, uh, shows us, you know, you don't want to be number 11. So it's always good to be number one. And if you're at the bottom, we're going to be looking at you harder. So, right. Right. No, I, I think that's awesome. And for those people who don't know spot sheets, it's sort of a glorified online Excel spreadsheet with scheduling capabilities and linking capabilities and tagging capabilities. It's, 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 it's quite, it's quite powerful. Um, yeah. It's yeah, like, I highly if, recommend if, it. If Asana and Excel had a baby, that's the closest yes, that's way to exactly, think about it. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, 100%. Cool. Question number four is, in one sentence, what has been the biggest failure in your career? And what did you learn from that failure? Um, the, yeah, I mean, Exxon was a pretty big failure. Uh, it's The anniversary of that's coming up on the 18th of July. So it's, what, uh, what anniversary are we at? 
uh, eighth, eight years ago. Nice. Yeah. Nice, so man. it's, it was, uh, I mean, it was one that I remember back on, on an annual basis. So it's, yeah, that was one of those failures that I beat myself up because I mean, getting fired is never a good experience and people have a tendency to take, to put, make it about them and like, Oh, I was a failure. You know, it's never, it's man, still, it's hard to explain, but being told that you're a failure or and actually failing at something, especially for like myself, I graduated top of my class. I was always winning my whole life. And I was the first, you know, point blank, you failed kind of, uh, experience that I ever had. And that changed me quite a bit. I dropped a lot of ego after that. And, and also because I was at that point, uh, I had owned a real estate. I don't my first apartment complex and it was negative cash flowing, I had, didn't have insurance on it or the insurance I had was a scam. And I just recently got notified that I had asbestos on it. So it was, it was just a kind of the nail, the last nail in the coffin for me, uh, when I lost that job. So that was big learning experience was, uh, I learned so what was the, what was the number one thing you learned from that? that Um, the number one thing I learned from that would be, um, you know, I learned a lot of things from it. I heard, e- I heard ego in e- there. Ego is one. Yeah. For, let's just stay on ego. You know, when, you, and maybe it's just cause I was 25 or 26, you know, you, you feel a bit invincible and I think it's good for people to get kind of checked, so to speak, at least once in their life and let them know, no, you're, you're normal. You can be hurt. And I think at that point I, I felt pretty invincible my whole life. Cause nothing had actually really hurt me that much. I'd always, I'd been through some hard times, but I'd, I'd been able to maneuver around it. And just like in this one, I maneuvered around it. And that was the other thing I, I learned that I just, I just leaned on my perseverance, you know, like the next day I dropped 10 grand, joined a real estate group. I didn't, I was hurt for a little while, but I wasn't going to stay down. I found a solution. I got out of it. Um, and so I learned I was stronger than I was. So, you know, it's one of those things that you think that, man, you lose your job. It's, it's the end of the world. And no, it, I lost my job on a negative cash flowing property. I'm still here. So <laughs> awesome. Awesome, dude. Well, last question is where can people reach to continue the conversation? They want to be in your sphere. Where do they go? Uh, so just reach out on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on there. Uh, otherwise, they can go to our website, tryarcrep.com. There's a dozen different options to get in touch with us. They can get in touch directly with me or they want to get in touch with you know, our construction team or our property management whatever, uh, there's many different avenues to get in touch. Otherwise they can just send email to info at triarchrep.com and uh, we'll get you routed either to me if you're trying to get in touch or uh, somebody else at the company. So. Awesome. Awesome, mate. Well, look, I want to thank you so much for jumping on the show today. I just want to reflect some of the things that I took away from today's show just to summarize it for the audience. I think the biggest thing for me talking to you is your ability to adapt to the situation, obviously adapting to Australia, adapting to Papua New Guinea, adapting to, to the failure of, of being fired, ad- constantly adapting and changing as you're growing, I think is really, really important. And maybe having that failure at the beginning when you're 25, you need to sort of to be checked at the door to make sure you're keeping those boots on the ground. Uh, in terms of more technical stuff, I really love what you're doing in terms of making sure you're, you're, you're grouping the units together and getting the GC on board and making sure you're holding his, his, uh, his, his his feet to the fire in terms of liquidated damages. And, and for those people who missed that, 
the liquidated averages is backed into what the monthly rent was divided by 30 uh, per day. So I think those things have been some of the big things that I've taken away from today's show. Uh, did I leave anything out? No, no, I think that was, we covered a lot. So Awesome, awesome, dude. Well, look, I want to thank you again. Enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up very, very soon. See you later, Reed. Well, there you have another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice from Joseph. He is a wealth of knowledge. If you do want to get in touch with him, please get it. Check him out on LinkedIn. He's very active. That's how we met. Um, and he, he's a really cool guy, down to earth. So go check him out and check out what he's doing with his team down in the, in the Houston area. Uh, I want to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ because that's what we're all about here on this show. And we're going to do it all again next week. So remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. 